This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond today. Good Faith Fam, I'm really excited to welcome on a brilliant writer I've just become acquainted with through her essays at Tablet Magazine, including her most recent one about cemetery tourism. Yes, I said cemetery tourism and its profound implications for identity, community, spirituality. It's such a weird corner of the discourse that I think has fascinating lessons for the American body politic as a whole. And since this whole podcast is about taking weird corners of the discourse and showing how they're foundational to American society, this is right up my alley. So we're going to talk about all that and more with the amazing Chaisar Oppenheim. But first, uh, let's set this up. So we've been talking a lot about the book of Deuteronomy lately, and I want to actually take a step back to consider its place within the macro literary structure of the Mosaic books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So when you pan all the way out, you can see that the story of the Israelites begins with Abraham and it ends with Moses. It begins with a divine promise made. It ends with a divine promise fulfilled. It begins with a journey from Mesopotamia to the promised land, and it ends with a journey from Egypt to the promised land. And finally, Perhaps most intriguingly, both the Abraham and Moses stories end with an extended preparation for death. But in this case, the stories seemingly couldn't be more different. So in the case of Abraham, the final scene in his story before he becomes like a supporting cast member in the Isaac narrative is his purchase of a burial plot for his beloved wife and covenantal partner, Sarah, and where he too will eventually be buried in the promised land itself. But While the scene involves a lot of action, even drama and high stakes, it involves almost no speech whatsoever. And other than some brief haggling with the plot's former owner, Abraham doesn't speak at all. And he certainly offers no reflection on the meaning of his death or his legacy or anything of that nature. Now, Moses, however, is the complete opposite. The final scene in the Moses story is also about death, right? And how God himself cared for him at the very end. But whereas Abraham's burial plot scene has almost no speaking parts whatsoever, Moses' final moments are all talking. I mean, the entire book of Deuteronomy is one extended and extraordinary deathbed oration. And at the same time, while Abraham's burial plot scene focuses on the place that he and his wife will be interred, a place that you can still visit to this day in the city of Hebron, of Hebron, when it comes to Moses, the book of Deuteronomy deliberately deliberately tells us that no one knows his burial place to this day. So why the difference between the two bookends to the Israelite story in the Mosaic books? And the answer, I think, is that each narrative tells us something important about the Bible's view on the ties that bind us together. So the Moses story illustrates that at the end of the day, it's ideas that change the world for the better. It didn't and it doesn't matter what Moses wore, how tall he was, what his favorite ice cream flavor was. What mattered was his willingness in the words immortalized for Americans on the Liberty Bell to proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, to introduce to the world the idea of the Sabbath, to teach us how to pray for forgiveness, to aspire for redemption. So we don't know his burial place because ultimately it wasn't the man, but the ideas that mattered most. But Abraham teaches us that the opposite perspective is equally true. 
because in Abraham's case, the Bible famously does not tell us why Abraham was chosen to form a covenant with God in the first place. For thousands of years, Jewish tradition, and not to mention Islamic and Christian writers too, have proposed explanation after explanation, but notably, the Bible neither confirms nor denies any of them. And what that highlights is that ultimately, the Bible does not present Abraham as a person of ideas. I mean, he was, but the Bible doesn't present him that way, the way that it does for Moses. Moses in the Bible is the lawgiver. That's not what Abraham is. No, Abraham in many ways is something even more profound. He doesn't build a moral system like Moses. Instead, he builds a family. Moses focuses on the macro picture, but Abraham focuses on the micro. Moses' primary challenge is to be a better national leader. Abraham's primary challenge is to be a better husband, a better father. And at the end of the day, you can't have a nation. You can't have a a whole moral system with judges and bureaucracies. You can't have a radically transformed world without the simple bonds of love, loyalty, and personal virtue that Abraham and Sarah cultivated. And to cultivate those simple bonds, ideas actually matter less than home, than place, than family, than people you loved and who loved you. And so in the end, Moses' legacy is a set of ideas that we can still revere. But Abraham's legacy is a holy place that we can still visit and a holy family we can call home. Now, In American life, we've traditionally tended to focus, I think appropriately, on the importance of ideas, no matter who articulates them. And that's a source of great strength and goodness. But I think we sometimes suffer from lack of emphasis on family, on place, on home, on the embodied nature of communal life and spiritual life. And as American communities of all sorts become weaker and loneliness is on the rise, we can see how important it is to remember those micro foundations, not just the macro ones. So what would it look like to have that more embodied physical experience of transcendence? And today, I actually want to unpack this from a very particular, unique, unusual perspective with the brilliant author, Chayasar Oppenheim, who wrote a fascinating piece about this recently. So let's get into it. Chayasar, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, I'm so excited about this. So you (laughs) wrote this awesome, brilliant, like weird and idiosyncratic piece about Muncie, a place that's very close to my heart. My wife is from there. So you wrote this amazing piece for Tablet Magazine. It's called The Pilgrimage to Muncie about a cemetery in the city of Muncie, which is home to a large, wonderful Orthodox Jewish population. And within the Orthodox world, it's actually pretty diverse. And this cemetery draws many thousands of people each month who come to visit. So can you explain what this is all about? I mean, we have a lot of listeners, whether Jewish or not Jewish, for whom this is like totally foreign and novel. So what's this all about? Absolutely. So in Muncie, New York, there is a Visionist Cemetery. By Visionist, you mean it is overseen and over cared for and dedicated in large part to a particular Hasidic sect. Exactly. Right. So Rabbi Mordechai Hager, who was the grand rabbi of the Vizhnitz community, he made the move to Muncie, New York, which is a suburb about an hour outside of New York City. And he made the move with his community, I think it was in 1964. And in the 70s, he said, we've got to buy a cemetery. We've got we've got to have a piece of land where Jews can be buried. And, you know, just to touch on the wonderful introduction that you made, right, Abraham makes it really clear in the verses that he wants to buy this plot of land to bury Sarah in. It's extremely important to have this place where Jews can be buried. So he purchases this plot of land in the 70s. And from there, we start to have 
very great rabbis being buried there. So the first figure to be buried there is the Skalener Rebbe. Later, his son is buried there in 2018. You know, these were enormous Torah scholars. They survived the Holocaust. And the Skalener Rebbe was under communist occupation uh, under the Romanians. And then he made it to the U.S. uh, in 1960. And tortured horribly, right? And tortured horribly. Yes, exactly. And, you know, they really represent Torah ideals and and Torah values. And so, you know, he was the first to be buried in this cemetery. The Ribnitzer Rebbe, uh, Chaim Zanvil Abramowitz, was also buried there in 1995. Uh, And then we also have, obviously, the Vishnitzer Rebbe, who was buried there recently. So this ordinary plot of land really attracted great Torah scholars, but who also really represented a connection back to Europe, right? You know, pre-Holocaust. And so I think when people began coming to this cemetery, and I think the Ribnitzer Rebbe was the main attraction in the beginning, what they were really coming to was finding a place to connect, right? Not only to the idea that these great people are buried here now, and there's this idea in Judaism that obviously we do not pray directly to the deceased, But there's this concept that if there's someone great, right, or someone who you feel connected to, uh, who has already passed on, they might give you, you know, a few extra points in a way if you're if you're praying for something to happen. You know, after all, they're 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 closer to God's ear in some way. So I think that these few people, these few great Torah leaders who are buried in the cemetery serve as that form of connection where people come. So, first of all, this story is so fascinating to me for several conceptual reasons, and I want to get into those, but I want to start actually at the personal. So, for myself, I feel very close to Visionist. My great-great-grandfather was my grandfather's Rebbe. Uh, Rebbe Yeshua Balmo was the youngest Visionist of Rosh Hashiva, and so I feel, feel very close to Visionist. His chuvos were published recently by Visionist and my grandfather, his, his response to literature. Also, as I said, my wife is from Muncie. My favorite factoid about Muncie is that Jews who live predominantly, like, close to Manhattan, we refer to Muncie as upstate New York. And I remember the first time I, I had, I met a friend, not Jewish, from Rochester. I was like, oh, where's your wife from? I said, by by reflex, oh, upstate New York. He goes, where? I said, Muncie. He goes, I've, is that near, he's, I'm in upstate New York. I'm like, no, 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 it's like exit 11 on the Palisades. This is like, it may as right. well be South Carolina. But uh, so I, my question for you is why this story, right? So why focus on, you know, it's a huge Jewish community, but a relatively small town as far as America is concerned. It's a suburb. Like, why focus on this one place where there's this one strange, idiosyncratic habit of visiting cemeteries? Why was this important and interesting to you? Well, I <laughs> I live in Muncie, right? And Already love And it. in many ways, <laughs> I grew up, right, across the street from the cemetery. You know, when I was younger, it wasn't a very popular place at all. But over the past few years, I really started, be, uh, you know, I really started beginning to see how many people were going there. And, you know, you're right, Muncie, well, it used to be a small town, not so, not so much anymore. Right. <laughs> but, you know, on 
the eve of every Jewish month, right? On every Erev Rosh Chodesh. This is when most people come. And when I say most people, I mean up to 10,000. And they're not only from Muncie, right? All of Muncie doesn't turn out to go to this cemetery, but they're really coming from all over. You know, people are coming from Lakewood, which is can be, you know, a two-hour drive away. Uh, people are coming from Brooklyn with traffic that's also two hours away. Uh, people are even coming from Israel, which has its own amazing places and grave sites that people can go to visit and pray at. So I think looking at this cemetery and how it's really turned into this massive site uh, was interesting for me to kind of look at and speak to the people who go there and go there often and see what their perspective was. And when I did speak to people, a lot of people told me that, you know, they really feel like their prayers get answered when they go there. You know, there was a uh, Kohen who I spoke to, and a, a Kohen is, is a priest in, in the Jewish tradition, and ordinarily they can't go into cemeteries, they can't uh, compromise their, their ritual purity by being close to the dead. But this Muncie Cemetery in particular is unique because it is very accessible uh, for Kohanim, for people of Kohanitic descent. And when I spoke to this person who, who went for a while, he said that praying in a cemetery or just going to a cemetery and visiting was extremely meaningful for him. Not only because this is one of the first times really that he's able to do that, but because there's just something different about being surrounded by death and being very aware of one's own mortality. And, you know, it's different from, you know, meditating in a forest or going to a synagogue, kind of being surrounded and knowing where you are, knowing that you can walk past out those gates of the cemetery and continue to live your life in a meaningful way, um, but still tapping into the energies that are accessible in the cemetery can be a very powerful thing. So this is exactly what I wanted to pick up on, right? So I have this hot take. I've mentioned it on the pod before, and I want to try out a version of it on you if you're up for it, okay? Yes. So for a very long time, our society maintain the belief that there are certain foundational works that a person, works of literature that a person needs to read in order to be a thoughtful, educated person and to wrestle with the best of what humanity has to offer. Call it a, a canon, a great books curriculum. In recent decades, and particularly in the last 10 years or so, it's become very fashionable to be dismissive of the, the idea of a great books canon. Now, temperamentally and intellectually, I'm a believer in the great books concept. But that said, I am very sympathetic to some of the critiques of the idea and particularly to the criticism that the canon, as we traditionally conceived of it in the West and America, was too narrow. And, and it actually should be expanded to better account for the beauty and bounty of human thought at its broadest. But there's a sort of like pithy shorthand version of this critique that I don't like. And that's to object that, oh, we're too obsessed with dead white men. Now, I've said this on the pod before. I can understand the point about including more diverse thinkers. Like, it's a huge mistake in my view not to expose oneself to great thinkers like Ibn Khaldun in the Islamic world or great works like the Ramayana in India just because they're not European. But what irks me about that particular formulation is the idea that we're reading too many dead people, right? Like the critique about whiteness and men is a call for us to expose ourselves to more people. But the critique about dead people is actually the opposite. It's a call to narrow our thinking, meaning like the vast, vast majority of humans who have ever existed are dead. 
And so if we want to really understand the diverse brilliance of humankind, we should probably read more dead writers, not fewer. And I raise this because I think it's important not just to feel connected to other dead authors, but to dead people in general. Like Americans today seem less connected to the past, any sense of tradition than ever before. So what in a larger sense, what can Americans learn from Muncie Cemetery culture about attachment to the past? Absolutely. That's a really interesting point. Every now and then I get one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think one way to think about it is that you standing right here right now and me, right? I am my grandparents, right? They, they are embedded in me. And looking toward the future, right? I will be embedded into my grandchildren. And I think when we think about visiting cemeteries, especially within the Jewish tradition, it's very much a family dynamic. I love that. I'm kind of thinking about Rachel, when she was buried baderich, on the way, right? And rabbinic commentary on that phrase, what does on the way mean? It means that the Jews, hundreds of years later, when they would be going out to exile in Babylon, they would pass Rachel's tomb on the way. And as the later prophet Jeremiah recounts, right? Rachel mevaka albaneha. Rachel cries over her children. And so I think when we're going to these cemeteries, we're not just going to random people, right? There's this sense of connection that goes all the way through. And, you know, even thinking back just a few hundred years to Ashkenazic Jewry in Europe, it was very much part of the culture to go to Kivrei Avos, to go to the graves of immediate family that have that have passed away. And especially in the month of Elul, right, which is coming upon us now, preceding the High Holy Days, to, to ask for mercy and to have our family who's close to us uh, intercede on our behalf. You know, I think I'm always reminded of uh, the graveyard scene in Fiddler on the Roof. Tev- Tevye turns to his wife, Golda, right? And he wants to convince her that you know, their daughter Seidel should not marry Laser Wolf the butcher. Instead, she should marry uh, Mutzel the tailor, right? And so what does he do? He literally starts bringing up the dead. He says, I had a dream. There was a big party and all of our beloved departed were there, right? Uh, your great uncle Mordechai was there. Your cousin Rachel was there. Your grandmother Seidel comes in, right? And she says, no, my great-granddaughter, right? Speaking as Saito, is supposed to marry Mutzel the tailor. And she even makes the connection of, you know, great-uncle Mordechai, Mutzel the tailor, the names, the names are related. It all makes sense. And, you know, obviously that's like somewhat of an exaggerated way of thinking about how we're connected with the dead. But just last week, I was actually in the cemetery. I was uh, saying a bit of Tehillim psalms at, at the ashes of the Jews who were murdered in Chelno. Uh, and as I was walking out, I passed by three generations of women who were coming out of a car. It was a grandmother in her 50s, a young mother in her 20s, and the grandmother was holding a newborn infant on her shoulder. And as I passed them, they were heading in towards uh, some of the graves, and I overhear the grandmother talking to the newborn baby on her shoulder and saying, I'm bringing you right now to the matseva, right? To the, to the tombstone of the person you're named after. So I think 
when we think about the ways in which we're connected, it goes way beyond us, right? To, to everyone who's passed on before us and way into the future as well. I think I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm riffing here, but one of the things that makes me think of is I remember visiting this the cemetery in Princeton, like around around the university. And I was there because it just has a lot of cool people in it, right? So it has like, it has Aaron Burr, right? It has, cool. uh, right, it has just like a bunch of cool folks. Tons and tons of cool people, many of whom I believe it has, I believe it has Jonathan Edwards, one of the great figures in the in the Great Awakening. And I remember thinking to myself as I was there that most of the people who were there were sort of like, ah, oh, like fascinating. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, I I feel connected to the I mean, as someone who's proud of of the American experiment and and the Jewish role in the American experiment, I felt like connected to these folks. And as I was trying to to explain that to the people I was with, I, I realized it sounded strange. Like, what emotional tie, other than kind of curiosity, what emotional tie could I possibly have to Jonathan Edwards, like a Christian preacher from, you know, from the early embryonic moments of the American story? And part of what it is, I think, is sort of like a similar experience to going to the Muncie Cemetery. Now, again, there, you know, everybody's part of the Jewish community. We all feel like family, and that is important. But at the same time, it's not like only the, you know, the Vizitsa Rebbe's children and grandchildren are going there. Like, it's not like just you're visiting your direct relatives. And the reason you're visiting people there is not just because you feel family ties to them. You're visiting people there because you actually feel part of their stories. You feel part of their accomplishment. And in a way, I think it's so critical for Americans to learn that lesson because we actually don't have any other mechanism, socioculturally speaking, for crafting continuity in the American story because we're not a family, right? Meaning we're a set of ideas. And being able to feel a connection to some of our intellectual and national ancestors, even though though we're not technically their direct descendants in any biological sense, is important, right? Meaning, so is it possible perhaps that Americans should just actually spend more time in cemeteries? Yes, everyone, I think everyone should spend (laughs) more time in cemeteries. And I think it's important to add to this conversation as well that the Vision Cemetery doesn't stand alone, right? It's not just a plot of land and, you know, houses built around it. It is actually part of a conglomerate of cemeteries, uh, which I find extremely meaningful. Big cemetery, it's like big pharma, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) Right, but it borders a historic cemetery that goes back, it was started in 1700, called the Brick Church Cemetery. And the founder of the Boy Scouts of America, Daniel Baird, is buried there. Um, wow. And yeah, it's pretty cool. I had, I literally had no idea that that was the case. And I've passed yes. that cemetery a million times. Yes, you have to look at the signs. <laughs> so cool. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, you know what's also cool about it, as you walk through, is you start to see tombstones with the names of the streets that are throughout Muncie, Blauvelt, and Forche, right? These are the people. What is happening now? I had no idea about any of this. Yes. Yes. That's so cool. And even if you want to see a connection of the place where you live today, right? It's not necessarily Jewish, but it is in the United States, right? You see in the town that you're living, the people who set up the place before you. And just a little bit down the road is a veterans memorial cemetery. And, you know, I've I've been there Memorial Day and all the flags are up and 
they're, you know, everyone's got the identical rectangular tombstones and, you know, a lot have crosses on them and some have, you know, stars of David, but that doesn't matter, you know, because everyone was fighting for the values of the U.S. in, in the war. That is such a brilliant point. And actually, it's a good segue because the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is one of my favorite recent movies, which is called In the Heights. It was a movie that I thought I was going to hate when I saw it because it's and I've talked about this on the podcast like a while ago. I thought I was going to hate it because it's about Washington Heights, a community that I feel a lot of affinity for and spent a very large, I mean, I spent actually most of my life living in at this point, probably longer than I've lived in any other particular domicile. And yet (laughs) the movie, even though it's like set in this very robust Jewish community, had like no Jews in it. So I thought I was going to hate it. Turned out I loved it. and I thought it was great because it actually doubled down so hard on particularistic identity And it didn't try to be like a melting pot story where like everybody's part of it, but it's sort of superficial. It actually said, we're going to tell a a story, a particular story about a particular community and a particular set of families that share these thick common bonds and use their culture and their values to actually add something extraordinary and unique that only they could add to the American story. I loved it for that reason. Now, one of the things that struck me about it was... In that respect, it was such a tight parallel for the Jewish community in Washington Heights because it was a story in the Heights in many ways is a story about homeland and diaspora. Right. So you see Dominican culture everywhere in in the Heights. I mean, and DR is a big part of the story and so on and so forth. And you can see both the beauty and the tensions of a diaspora community, right? What does it mean to be of a culture but not in your but not in your homeland? What does it mean to carry your values into a new society? Do you want to go back? Some people do in the story. So it makes me think in that respect, like another great exemplar of that beauty and tension is the Muncie Cemetery. Because one thing that you've, you know, said now a couple times here, which like we kind of have just glossed over, but it's so strange and and listeners may have already caught on to it is like there are Jews making pilgrimage to some random suburb on the Palisades. Right. And in fact, some Jews even as you, and you write this about this in the article, some Jews come from Israel to Muncie to visit on pilgrimage. So how do you think about the the opportunities, maybe the pitfalls of building sacred space for a community in a diaspora. For sure. So I personally find a lot of inspiration from an address Cynthia Ozick gave uh, in 1970 at the Weizmann Institute in Israel, right? And it's called, uh, I think, you know, it was published as an essay. It's called Toward a New Yiddish. And she talks about the fact that, oh, there exists a state of Israel and uh, we Jews in diaspora, what, what can we give now? What can we contribute? What can we provide? And so she makes an argument stating that America, Jews in America, can kind of build a metaphorical Yavne. Uh, Yavne referring to a city that was left after the destruction of the Second Temple from which all culture making uh, came forth. And so she says that Jews in the United States, right, while we're in diaspora, have an opportunity to meaningfully provide 
a lot more meaning to the way we think about Judaism and Jewish culture. You know, one way she thinks about this uh, is by suggesting that we have a centrally Jewish language. And so when she says, like, toward a new Yiddish, she's talking about taking English, right, and making it Jewish. One way I obviously think about it, about this is, oh, yeshivish, right? <laughs> the combination of English and Yiddish and Aramaic and Hebrew all coming together in the United States really makes American life meaningful and we can provide through it. And, you know, as you were talking about in the Heights and about the, you know, the extreme particularity of it, she really ends with this beautiful idea about a chauffeur as a metaphor. And she says, if we blow into the narrow end of the chauffeur, right, if we're Jewish, we will be heard far. But if we choose to be mankind rather than Jewish and blow into the wider part of the chauffeur, we will not be heard at all. For us, America will have been in vain. So I personally take that as a lot of inspiration. And I think as Jews living in the United States, we should really be proud and unapologetic uh, about our Judaism and the effect that we can have on the culture. I love it. Oh, I love that so much. That was great. And I love that imagery. And and it, it actually, it brings me right to the last point that I wanted to tease out of your story, which is so far, I think really your average Joe America or Jane America reading the story can follow along and understand the the logical progression here. And it really is just a question of taste, right? Like, is this the kind of thing I enjoy doing? Like, I, had a, I have a good friend, Jason, shouts to Jason, who proposed to his fiance in a cemetery, right? Like, so, so for some people that I write it like a Philip Larkin poem to her. Like, that works for some people, doesn't work for others. The one point in the story where I felt like I really want to double down now with you is regarding belief in miracles. So personally, I think that a reasonable person actually should just by default be open to the idea of miracles simply on the grounds that anyone who's lived on planet Earth for more than five seconds knows that this is an extremely weird place. It would be it would be odd like if miracles weren't a possibility like this. None of us live mathematical linear existences like this is a very weird world. So even not on theological grounds, which is where I'm coming from, but just on regular grounds of, of reason, I think people should be open to it. But forget the intellectual element for a moment. I'm interested in the sociological question. The community that you're describing is a community that absolutely, like myself, that absolutely believes in miracles. How does a strong belief in the miraculous shape a community? Like what good, bad, or neutral? How has a willingness to see miracles in daily life molded a community and sense of identity in Muncie, and what lessons might other American communities draw from that? Interesting. I think if one is inclined to believe in miracles, which I would say the Orthodox Jewish community... We like miracles. Yeah. <laughs> we, we believe in miracles. And honestly, this, this kind of really makes me think about the idea that one doesn't have to live in fear. And this brings me back to, you know, thinking about Rabbi Rottenberg in Muncie, right? And to a time of miracles, right? This was the time of Hanukkah just a few years ago, when in the home of Rabbi Rottenberg, who is a rabbi who lives in Muncie, there was a horrible anti-Semitic attack, right? A man came in with a machete 
uh, and began attacking people. Uh, by the way, for listeners, this is like a normal synagogue. It's on Orchard Hill. I've prayed there many, many times. Like, this is a place where people, super popular place, like anyone could have been there. It was a horrible, horrible attack, right? Yes. And, you know, this is during the time of Hanukkah, which which is the time of miracles, right? That oil was not supposed to last for eight days, and it did. And, you know, I, I was home with my family at the time. This was the weekend of Hanukkah, right? We were getting WhatsApp messages, right, of people who were at, at the party, at the lighting. And I think if one doesn't believe in miracles, it's very easy to just turn inward and not go outside and be afraid. And what was striking to me was that the very next day following this attack, a synagogue just a few houses down the street happened to be having a Hachnasa Sefer Torah, which is an inaugural uh, ceremony for a new Torah scroll. Torah scrolls, they're extremely uh, expensive, they're handwritten, they can take over a year to write. And this Torah scroll was being brought into this new synagogue. And when it's brought in, it's brought in with a parade in the street with music and dancing. And even though I wouldn't necessarily always go to Hachnasa's Sifri Torah, right? I, you know, there, there are plenty going on in Muncie and it was cold outside, it was the winter. After this attack the night before, I was like, I have, I have to go. And you know, what was so meaningful about that ceremony was that it stopped right outside Rabbi Rottenberg's house and he came outside and joined in the celebration because when you believe in miracles, right, you believe in life continuing. You don't feel the need to be intimidated or afraid. That is a gorgeous answer. And I, I really, I really, I couldn't, I couldn't put it better than that. And I guess my only question left is plugs. Like, what are you working on now? What, what are you thinking about next? What's interesting to you? So more writing. Yes. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So more writing, especially about Jewish America. I've got a couple projects. One is on Dara Horn's latest book, which is People Love Dead Jews. Great title. Lot to say about it. Oh, big fans on this podcast. Yeah. And uh, also some of uh, Cynthia Ozick's nonfiction. So that, that's what I'm working on. That's fantastic. The people can find your articles at Tablet Magazine. Chai Sarah Oppenheim, you are incredible. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. One of the most inspiring calls to action in American life at the moment is the American Dynamism Agenda. If you haven't heard of it, look it up. It sets out a vision for a revitalized American society committed to building big, innovative projects in critical areas like aerospace engineering, supply chain, industrials, manufacturing that support the national interest and through cultivating a dynamic spirit of growth and civic pride can secure America's capacity to bring its deepest values of liberty, freedom, and universal human dignity to life. Now, anyway, it's an exciting vision and I pray that it succeeds. But one thing I'm absolutely convinced of is that no reawakened commitment to the American future is possible without a deep rootedness in the American past and everything that went into giving us today 
the great gift that we have of being able to build a better society and world at large. And in this respect, there are few better communities for Americans to learn from than the Jewish community in Muncie, New York. And yeah, I know what could be stranger than regularly spending time in cemeteries, let alone at the graves of people who weren't immediate family. And yet, as Chayasara explained, it's this community's comfort around death that lends it fearlessness, that supports its commitment to growth, its birth rates are way above replacement, suffice it to say, and lends it a sense of dignity and self-confidence that other Americans should, in the most positive way, envy. So, as Chayasara said, on the margins, we should absolutely spend more time in cemeteries. You can't imagine how good it'll be for you, your community, and American society as a whole. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Oh,